So it turns out that the Pyeongchang Olympic Stadium costs 10 million US per hour to use. And this estimate comes from the fact that it cost 109 million US to build, and it's going to be torn down after being used exactly four times. Now, when I first heard that, I thought that's a terrible waste of money. And on the surface of it, that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like a terrible waste of money. All those months and those years of of preparation, of planning, um, all the labor, all the cost, you know, the the working things out and the design. And it's all going to be torn down after just four events, the opening and closing ceremonies of both the Olympic and the Paralympic Games. That's the only time that the Pyeongchang um, Olympic Stadium will have been used. But it actually makes sense to tear it down if you think about it. After all, the city of Pyeongchang has just 40,000 people in it, which means that just about everyone in the city would have to attend a sporting event at the same time to fill up the 35,000-person capacity stadium. It would be a white elephant. It would be a facility that was expensive to build, but useless after the fact, with maintenance costs and heating costs and other costs that could run into the many millions per year. It was actually decided that it would be more wasteful in the long run to keep it than to rip it down. After all, think about it. Montreal is still paying 500,000 Canadian dollars per year just to mend the rips in the roof of Canada's 1976 uh, Olympic Stadium. And that's not including all of, all of the other costs. And so Korea have decided not to go this route. And once I understood the reasons, it made sense for me. They've decided that they don't want a white elephant. They've decided to cut their losses. Now, this sermon is the second in a loosely connected series called Ultimate Questions. And we're trying to take a look at the big questions of the Bible um, and life and to see what God and the Bible have to say about them. Last month, we looked at worldviews. And this, this, this week, this time in Ultimate Questions, we're actually going to point our attention to a passage in the Bible that has tripped up many people over the years. And the question for today is, what kind of God would destroy a city with every living thing in it, men and women, young and old? Or what kind of God is the God of Jericho? Now, regarding uh, our passage today, uh, and if this is your first time here at Cornerstone, this isn't our us- usual kind of sermon, so, uh, but you know, I, you know, I'm trusting that the Lord has you here for a uh, reason. Now, regarding uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, Stuart Briscoe says this, There are real questions that can be raised by sensitive Christians. If we who take the Bible seriously skirt these questions in our preaching and teaching, we run two major risks. One is, is losing to unbelief, those who never get beyond those questions. Um, they deserve to hear us acknowledge the problem and at least speak to it. Secondly, we risk losing the richness of theological and spiritual insight that is ours as we wrestle with these questions. There are some reasons as to why God 
acted in the ways that trouble us. That was what Stuart Briscoe said. So let's turn to Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpets, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Verse 24, then they burnt the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, have you ever had one of those surreal moments when you think this cannot be happening right now? I've had many of them and many of my surreal moments have taken place in the Philippines where I lived for one year, like the time I accidentally drove over a big snake and it exploded, um, or the regular sightings of men rolling up their shirts to expose their bellies, or the time that the port area we were in was overrun by the U.S. Navy tanks, hovercraft, speedboats, and thousands of armed personnel, or like the time that the sky was full of the biggest bats I'd ever seen in my life, or like the time I was referred to in a shop as Mam Sir by shop assistants as if they weren't sure of my gender. And by the way, Mam Sir is a joined word which which joins two words together, Mam meaning madam and Sir meaning man. Or like the time I was in a restaurant and all the waiters and waitresses would suddenly break into a choreographed lovely dance, which was phenomenal. These were all surreal moments in my life. And in those moments, what I needed someone, or what I needed was someone to explain to me what on earth is going on right now. Why are the men exposing their navels? Why are we suddenly surrounded by U.S. military personnel? Why do the shop assistants call me both ma'am and sir at the same time? And why everyone seems to suddenly break into dance. And if no one explains to me in the Philippines and I lived according to my first impressions, then I would still consider the Philippines to be a land where snakes explode, where dangerous vampire bats could swoop down at any moment, where shop assistants are routinely questioning my gender, where the U.S. military regularly invades and uh, where, ros- where, re- where restaurant staff are in the delusional state of thinking they're in a musical and where men feel comfortable with exposing their tummies to me or to everyone. <laughs> if you want to find out why, I'll explain to you afterwards. <laughs> but 
I didn't allow my first impression to become my last impression. I spent time there. Over a year, I met many people. And over time, these surprising first impressions gradually began to make sense. Even though it was still a foreign country to me, I began to understand it a little bit more. After all, as the visitor, as the visitor it was my job to try to understand what I was seeing in the context of the local culture. I had to leave my British and my Canadian experience at home, and I had to put on new lenses. Besides, it's not only in the Philippines that I've had to make an effort to understand what's going on. I've also spent many years immersed in another culture. Um, And in this culture, it's even more confusing, because in this culture, people refer to east as down. And a dressing gown is referred to as a house coat. And a waistcoat is called a vest. And a vest is called a tank top. And where trainers are called runners, where a pancake, instead of being big and thin with lemon and sugar on it, is instead small and thick and covered with butter and maple syrup. Where electricity is called hydro, which actually means water. Uh, where, where my favorite toast spread, Marmite, is treated as a baking supply. And where milk is sold in bags. And don't get me started on beans with syrup, on referring to two sugars and milk as a double-double, on calling the $1 coin a loony and the $2 coin a toonie, and how 50% of all sentences end in the word A. (laughs) But like any immigrant to any country, I've learned to keep it under my toque and carry on. So like my year in the Philippines and my years here in Canada... When we're reading the Bible, sometimes we need to resist the urge to go with our first impression. Sometimes we need to maybe dig a little deeper and to suspend our judgment until we have all the facts, or at least we have a little bit more of the information. Just like I needed someone to explain to me why the Olympic Stadium was being torn down after four uses. Just like I needed a Canadian to explain to me that a toque is a beanie in Canada, and I needed a Filipino to explain why people dance in restaurants. So we need a tour guide to help us understand exactly what it is we're reading in the Bible sometimes. Now, in the New Testament, there's this guy called Philip who served as a local tour guide to an Ethiopian kind of high-up man in the government who was trying to understand what he was reading in the Bible, in, reading in the book of Isaiah. And that's what we're going to try to attempt to do here, is to take a bit of a deeper look at Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 through 25. Um, and I think it's important that we don't rush past verses like this, because if we do, they will only trip us up later on. And But if you're anything like me, then there are some verses that you think, man, I wish that that verse was not in the Bible. It would be so much easier to share with God or share God with my friends if I could just take a pair of scissors and cut out that particular verse. And in fact, that's what U.S. President Thomas Jefferson actually did. He cut out the parts of the Bible that didn't match with his perception of God. And that's a dangerous thing to do because... Then we end up making a God of our own making, and a God of our own making is actually no longer God. He doesn't exist, because we then take the role of God, and we make him our creation rather than the other way around. So the much braver thing, and in some ways the much more risky thing, and much more exciting thing, is is to come humbly before God's revealed word, and to bring our doubts and our questions, and to simply say, show me you in this Lord, and then to do your best to seek understanding. 
reading the Bible is a bit like following a path in the woods. You have to go where the journey takes you. You don't create your own path. So this message is our attempt to navigate some tough verses in the Bible and to see what God is trying to say to us through them. Most of these thoughts here today aren't original with me. I've needed some tour guides to help me understand the text, to point me um, or, or to point out to me what some cultural things mean or some theological things mean that I might not have picked up alone. And that's why we have to read. There are men and women much more learned than I who spent years studying these things. And I would be either the most arrogant or the laziest pastor in the world if I did not let them lead me through some of these harder passages, particularly passages like the one here today. And so my, my, my encouragement at, right at this point is for you to invest at least in a good study Bible that helps, at least starts to help unlock the meaning of the text. You, you know, we have the Right Now Media resources that can guide you there into the text. And so my, my encouragement to you is not to be lazy, n- not to be arrogant, but instead to be a student, to ask questions and to seek answers because there's nothing worth more investing in, both time and money, than really getting to know God because he's the one that made us. And so it should excite us. It should make us nervous. It should thrill us because it's not about academic study. It's about uh, learning more about the one who created you and who knows you inside and out. So, Let me mention a few of the books and authors that have been my tour guides through Joshua 6, and uh, feel free to write these down or listen to the sermon later on to to make a note if you want to read further. So there's Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. There's a book called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan. There's The Preacher's Commentary by Stuart Briscoe. There's a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. There's The Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology. And then there's Is God Just a Human Invention? by Sean McDowell. And these books have been my tour guide, and I hope that they do the same for you. So without further ado, let me bring to you a number of observations that will help us understand Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 through 26. And feel free to make notes there in your bulletin as we're reading along. So if we go on to the next slide... These are the four observations which I want to bring to us here today to help us understand a little bit more about what's happening here in Joshua chapter 6. Number one, the world is broken. Number two, this war was God's war. Number three, this was not genocide. And number four, there was some trash talk happening here. And so the first observation that we need to make is that things are not how they are supposed to be, that this world is broken, that that the world in which Joshua lived and was written, and the world in which we live as well was not God's plan. In fact, listen to this quote from Sean McDowell. He says this, war was not God's God's idea. He didn't invent it. Rather than God's ideal in creation can best be expressed in the Hebrew word shalom. So this word shalom is important. And there's this other guy called Cornelius Plantinger who explains what shalom means. And he says this, that shalom is the, is, is the webbing, is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and in delight. And then Plantinger goes on to say, he summarizes, he says, shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Okay, so, so that's what it means. Shalom is the way things ought to be. 
So when God created the world, it was with this sense of shalom, this webbing together of God and humans and all creation. Things were the way that they were supposed to be. This is what he intended, but then sin entered into the world and creation was broken. And ever since, human beings have been striving for supremacy, this never-ending struggle of one-upmanship. Shalom is how things ought to be, but Genesis 6 verse 5 describes how things too often are. Genesis 6 5 says this, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, Cornelius Plantinger puts it like this. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law. That's often what we think as Christians. You know, when we sin, we're breaking God's law. But, but he says this. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way that things are supposed to be. So as we read Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, we need to keep this observation in mind that things are not how they are supposed to be. This was not God's plan. Now, the second observation is that God indeed sanctioned certain wars uh, because Israel was what was known as a theocracy, which means that God was king. A human wasn't king, that the king, the ruler, was God. It's a theocracy. And it was only when King Saul came on the scene later on that Israel moved from being a theocracy to being a monarchy. So these wars that are referred to, and this war here in Joshua chapter 6, is referred to as a Yahweh war. Yahweh is kind of a a name that they used for God. Um, So they're referred to as Yahweh wars. And what this means is that the conquest of Canaan was a one-off. It was never to be repeated. Um, And in fact, the Canaan conquest is not how we often Imagine the self-righteous, powerful Israelites are coming against the weaker Canaanites. Um, and we know that this isn't true because one, just one generation earlier, the Israelites turned back from the border. And why did they turn back from the border? Because they looked at themselves as tiny little grasshoppers next to the giant, impressive warrior Canaanites. So there was some major inferiority complex going on here. And then after they were afraid, then they wandered in the desert for 40 years um, and became a bunch of ragamuffins. So things are probably even worse right now after 40 years. Uh, One author writes this, Israel is a lone kindergartner taking on the high school senior class with a whiffle bat. And he also said this, that Israel is storming Fort Knox with a water pistol. So we need to think of maybe David and Goliath here. It it was like that. And God also made it really clear in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 through 6, that he isn't doing this. He isn't invading Canaan because the Israelites are fine, upstanding folks who somehow earned it, that they've, they've earned some kind of brownie points. And so he's giving them Canaan as a treat. No, because in the book of Deuteronomy 9, verse 4 through 6, he says three times... It's because of their wickedness, not because of your righteousness. It's because of their wickedness, not because of your righteousness. I'm doing this because of their wickedness, not because of your righteousness. And so what what this means for us is 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 that we have to stop viewing God as an angry God who's just wading in, wiping out all of the people who oppose him, because that's not true, and that's not what we see here. So 
And this conquest of Canaan, particularly this taking of this walled city, Jericho, and this next walled city, uh, Ai, um, spanned one single generation in the history of Israel. So this war was a temporary war. Uh, and so this, you know, we need to stop thinking that, that as we're reading in the Old Testament, that there's some kind of a caricature that God is coming with wave after wave, wiping out his enemies. And what this also means is that we as Christians cannot use the conquest of Canaan as a blueprint for how we deal with those we don't agree with. Okay? So all other, all other religious conflicts, whether it's the Crusades, whether it's the modern jihadists, that what they're doing is they're saying to God, I'm doing this for you. But the Yahweh wars were about God saying to humanity, I'm doing this for you. The Yahweh wars were about God removing systems of oppression and evil so that he could set up his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It's like he's using maybe focused chemotherapy to get rid of a cancer that if it was left unchecked would wipe out the whole of the land, the whole of the body. So that's the second observation. Third observation, this is not genocide or ethnic cleansing. And, 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 and you know, if you hear um, modern-day atheists like Christian, uh, like Christopher Hitchens and, and um, more, that they often slap this, this name of, um, that they often use the terminology, this was ethnic cleansing. Uh, when we're referring to what's happening here in the book of Joshua. But, but these two terms genocide and ethnic cleansing are both uh, are two very specific terms that need to be applied accurately and really carefully because both of these terms bring a lot of emotion to the table and so if you had someone who was a friend saying well you know god's a god of, god of genocide how do you respond to that because they've set the bar here they've used this term that just gets everyone's back up and you're left going i don't know so we need to be really careful how we use these terms And why they don't apply here to the Yahweh wars is because genocide suggests that the Canaan conquest was racially motivated, that God didn't like the Canaanites or the Hittites, and so he wiped them off the face of the earth. But this is inaccurate in the extreme. This wasn't ethnic cleansing, as I've already explained. This was judgment. Remember that, as I explained last week, that the Canaanites were people who were hiding from God in order to carry on with their sinful way of life. And there's this guy called Clay Clay Jones who gives us a really helpful account into what was actually happening. And I'm just scanning the crowd because what what I'm about to say is not very nice, but I think it's important for us to hear, and I think that we're fine. Um, So this is what... So now everyone's listening. What's he about to say? Awesome. That's the end of the service. No. Okay, so this is what this guy Clay Jones says. He says this Moloch was so Moloch was the god that the Canaanites worshipped, and he says this Moloch was a Canaanite underworld um, underworld god represented as an upright, bull-headed idol with a human body, so if you can have that image in your mind, he has the head of a bull, he has the body of a human, these were the idols that they had, in whose belly a fire was stoked, and in whose arms a child was placed that would be burnt to death. 
It was not just unwanted children who were sacrificed, he says this. There's this guy called Plutarch who reports that during the, the Phoenician or the Canaanite sacrifices, the whole area before the statue was filled with the loud noise of flutes and drums so that the cries and wailings would not reach the ears of the people. So it's horrific what is happening. And I struggle with even sharing that with you this morning, but, but I'm sharing that with you to tell you that this was not ethnic cleansing that was going on. God was aware of the wickedness happening in this place, and so he judged them. And also, don't forget that God put off the judgment of these tribes until their sin had reached its full measure, as we read in Genesis 15, verse 16, which means that God was being patient for over 400 years. And what was the cost of God's patience? Well, this is what Joshua Ryan Butler says. He says that God's patience for the Canaanites was at the expense of the Jews because during these 400 years where they could have been living in the promised land, they were instead in captivity in Egypt, slaves to a cruel superpower with, while God was extending grace over to the Canaanites. So we need to think about that, that his kindness to the Canaanites was, was at the expense of the freedom of the Israelites. So we've made three observations so far. Number one, that the world is broken. Number two, that this war was God's war. And number three, that this was not genocide. And the final observation to make is this. That there was probably some trash talk going on here. Now we read in Joshua 6.21, they devoted the city to the Lord and they destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. So obviously something happened Yes, an invasion took place. Yes, yes, people were killed. Yes, the walls came down. But like I said, there was some kind of trash talk going on here, or as Sean McDowell calls it, war language. Now, remember when I said earlier about the importance of us having a tour guide? Well, this is one of those moments. You see, we're coming from our 21st century perspectives, and we're trying to read um, literature written in the Bronze Age like it's yesterday's paper. And we aren't able to do that, or we shouldn't do that. We need to do our level best to try to get into the minds of the people of of that time, which is tough because they lived ages ago. Now, Wendy and I try to help our parents understand the modern terminology of technology, and there's sometimes a bit of a disconnect that, you know, words we use that they don't necessarily make sense to them. And we're all still alive So how much more patience should we have when trying to understand a historical document that was written thousands and thousands of years ago, and yet we expect to read the book of Joshua like it's an email from a mate of ours? So when we read the book of Joshua, we have to understand that it was, it was written in a time when it was common to trash talk your enemies. Nowadays, we call it hyperbole. And here's a couple of examples. There was this guy in Egypt, Tutmosis III, who lived in the 15th century BC, and he said this. He boasted that the the numerous army of Mitanni was overthrown within the hour, annihilated totally, like those now not existent. But in fact, the Mitanni's forces lived on to fight for many more years. Or what about Ramesses II's son, Uh, Munepta, who said in 1230 BC that Israel is wasted, his seed is not. And I don't think that he's referring to Israel having had a rough night out on the town last night. That's not what wasted means. But 
he means that they were wiped out, that they ceased to exist, that there were no more Jews in the world. Now we know that that's not true. Just ask Woody Allen or Barbara Streisand or Adam Sandler or Sasha Baron Cohen. There are still Jews in the world. Or what about Moab's king Misha, who said in 835 BC that he said that the northern kingdom of Israel was, has utterly perished for all ways. Well, actually, King Misha, all due respect, but Israel won't be wiped out until 722 BC. And it's not going to be you and the Moabites who do it. It's going to be the Assyrians. So, yeah, but that's how people spoke back then. It's the ancient equivalent of the hockey team mouthing off to their opponents, we're going to wipe the floor with you. They're not literally going to do that. So we have to understand that when we're reading Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, there's some rhetorical bravado, as Paul Copen words it, that is being used. And this is it's called trash talk. It's like an MMA fighter saying that he totally slaughtered his opponent, or a sports team saying that they blew the other team out of the water. We know what they're saying, but we also know how to interpret it. It's true, but it's not literally true. And those who lived in Joshua's day, they would have known what he was talking about. So we need to get this image out of our mind of God and the Israelites blasting through the land of Canaan, leaving no one breathing. We only have to look at at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 22, to realize that this was not God's plan. Because it says there that the Lord, your God, will drive out those nations before you little by little. It says he will drive them out. So little by little. It says drive out, not wipe out. And here's another example. In Joshua 11, verse 22, we read that there were no Anakites left left in the territory of Israel. None left at all. And, and the word that's used here is this word, word called haram, which means utterly destroyed. But then in chapter 14, verse 12, just three chapters later, here is what Caleb says. He says, the Lord helping me, I will drive out the Anakites. So there were no Anakites left. They were utterly destroyed but they've now reappeared. So what do we make of this? Was there some kind of a zombie army of the undead who were back to wreak havoc? Probably not. But what's being used here is war language. It's true, but we're not sure exactly how literally true it is. And so for some of us, we struggle with that because we pride ourselves on taking the Bible literally. But what happens when the Bible when it doesn't meet our 21st century standards of literalism. Were they wiped out or were they not? Speak plainly, God, come on. And maybe you're reasoning, well, if perfect God got this fact wrong or, you know, maybe, you know, not exactly right, then in the way that we see it, then how can we trust anything in the Bible? But maybe God's primary goal isn't for us to take every word in the Bible literally. After all, no one really believes that Jesus is made of metal poles and swings open and shut to allow us in and out of a field. Yet we do believe that he's the gate. We know what that means. We can interpret it. We, don't, we, we understand it as true even if we don't take it literally. And we know that we should never bake Jesus in an oven. That's bad. Yet we do understand that he's the bread of life. We know what that means. 
And we know we should never pin Jesus down and have a little nibble on his fingers, even though he tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. We know what that means. We know how to interpret it. So why can't we do the same with the book of Joshua? Is it possible that when God was writing his inerrant, inspired word through whoever wrote the book of Joshua, that he could have been writing in a way that reflected the time and spoke to the people of that time? And I find this to be a huge, huge encouragement. In fact, this, 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 this says to me that what I'm reading in the Bible is true because I think it would be weird if everyone else in the ancient Near East was using this bravado war talk and then the, and then the Israelite scribe of Joshua was writing something really clinical, really contrived, really careful so that all the 21st century readers wouldn't be offended and would be happy. That would be suspicious. I would think that maybe he's making something up. It's like when teachers know that you've copied off Wikipedia instead of writing your own essay because it doesn't sound like you. It sounds too good. It sounds too maybe perfect. It sounds fake. No one's fooled when that happens. And so I think it's a huge thumbs up for the Bible when this ancient Near East trash talk is used because it rings true. It sounds legitimate. And the message of this trash talk is God totally trounced the Canaanites. And that is true. So, in order to summarize, here's what I believe. I believe that there was an historic place called Jericho. I believe that the Israelites walked around it for seven days. I believe that the walls of the military of this military outpost fell down flat. I believe that the that the Israelites then went straight in and they conquered Jericho. And uh, that that from the yeah the words of the commander of the Lord's army, and according to military warfare of that time, they killed the the those who 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 lived there who were mostly military personnel i believe that this took place because they were part of a culture that was unrepentant and wicked beyond hope that this culture was so sick and so depraved that there was no hope for the city as a whole but rahab was a sign that those who put their faith in god were spared now i also believe that god judged the israelites Um, according to the same standards that he set everyone else. They were not let off because God was some kind of a holy sugar daddy. And I also believe that God was strategic, that he knew what he was doing when he brought his people into this specific geographic region because it's in Canaan, later Palestine, that Jesus would be born, that he would live and that he would die. And I believe that Jesus rose again and he appeared to his disciples in Canaan, later Palestine, and when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and gave birth to the church, that this group of people were poised and ready to take the gospel out into the nations. Now, I believe that this place called the Promised Land or Canaan or Palestine was strategic in God's sovereign plan because when persecution came and this brand new church was scattered, they could easily travel the length of the Roman Empire on Roman roads and speak one language to all of the people, which made missionary work that much easier. That language was Greek and Canaan later Palestine, was the perfect central location for this to start. They could go down to Africa. They could go west to Europe. They could go east over to India. There was 
This was the perfect place. So, so this was, was God's plan, was to have his people in his place for his purpose, so that when the time was right, they could travel the known world in relative ease, spreading the message of the gospel. This was God's plan. And I believe that, that, that what we're reading here is that the time of the Canaanite superpower had, had reached its end, that God was going to do something new through the nation of the Israelites. Much like the Pyeongchang Olympic Stadium, God in his perfect wisdom knew that it would be f- far better in the long run to rip down Jericho rather than to leave this white elephant symbol of sickness stand and have the f- future generations pay for it over and over and over again. And I believe that God really declares war on evil and that the Canaanites found themselves on the wrong side of God simply because they were morally wicked. And I believe one day that all evil will come to an end in the last battle. And I believe that, there, that though there is, is good historic reason for us to take much of the Bible literally at face value, that God is less concerned with us taking every word he says in the Bible literally, and he's more concerned with us taking every word he says in the Bible seriously. And I also believe that some well-meaning Christians hold literalism as some kind of a, up as some kind of a litmus test through which someone's faith either passes or fails. And I don't believe that that's right. Because, but I do believe that the Bible is an inspired library of God's words concerning all sorts of different genres of writing that are true even if we don't take them all literally. I think or I know that we need to read poetry like the Song of Songs with different lenses to history books like the book of Joshua. And I believe that we need to read apocalyptic literature like Revelation maybe differently than we read the Gospels or, or the letters. If I was to say to you, knock, knock, who's there? You know that I'm not telling you a new story from yesterday. Because you know the genre. You're really familiar with it. You know this is a joke and not a news article. And so we, we have to do the same hard work of giving God's inerrant word, word the same courtesy. When we're reading the account of Jericho, let's remember these four observations. Number one, that the world is broken. Number two, that this war was God's war. Number three, that, that this was not genocide. And number four, that there probably was some trash talk going on here. It's our job to understand what God is saying through his word. And we must take it seriously because it's true and because the fate of our eternal souls hinge on whether or not we believe it's true. I do believe that there literally is a hell that we have to avoid and a heaven that that we have to aim for. And the Bible tells us all about that. And finally, I believe that what Joshua 6 shows us is a God who's willing to enter into a sinful, imperfect culture who gets down onto our level so that we can understand what he's trying to say. And if this world to which he hears, he's communicating happens to be a bloody warrior society in a dog-eat-dog world, then God is willing to, to speak and to communicate in a way that they might understand. Because God is playing the long, long game. And the Bible is an unfolding story of God trying to say to a sinful world that he loves them. And so, little by little, this revelation is unraveled, not all at once because they couldn't have handled it, but he left signposts here and there saying, this is what I'm like, 
And so here in Joshua 6, these signposts show us that he's a holy God who cannot stand evil, hence Jericho, and that he's a God who is full of grace and mercy, hence Rahab. He's a God who's removing systems of evil and he's replacing them with his rule and his kingdom. He did that in Canaan and he's doing it now, whether in the brothels of Thailand or with the hidden slaves of the Middle East or in the broken homes of Ontario. God is recreating us. This is the God of Joshua 6, verse 21. This is the message of Joshua. This is the message of Jesus. This is our God. Remember that we are tourists visiting the Bible. Sometimes we need guides, but as with all the best places, the God of the Bible invites us to visit for a day and to stay for a lifetime.